You're listening to R&D in the QC with Targ Bakari and Larkin Eggleston. Episode 10, we talk about jet noise, storm water, and special guest Councilwoman Lawana Mayfield joins the podcast. episodes under our belt once we're done with this one tonight. I mean, we're basically podcast professionals at this point. We are. I, I can't imagine how good we'd be if we were able to record this show when we hadn't been working for 14 straight hours uh, and sitting through four and five I hour I feel like meetings. I'm always delirious, like on the verge of saying something ridiculous. Well, you do that all day. That's true. That's true. Um, and maybe it makes us better. Maybe, maybe the fact that we don't overthink things because we're so tired we don't. makes the show more entertaining. Like planning for this. One but one second before we click go, we're like, what should we talk about? You're like, this, that. Yeah. I was like, okay, ready? Three, two, live. Just uh, like that. So, with that in mind, since you just admitted that we already planned out what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, you've got a district-specific issue you wanted to cover Oh, right we're going to start with that. We are. Oh, man. You just threw me and off. I, and I don't even know anything about it. Good. Uh, All right, this so, will be uh, so. Let me present the case to, to you as I'm because I'm in the middle of it right now. So anyone who read the Observer today, the one of the guys, a couple of the folks leading this this uh, this whole uh, issue made an op-ed uh, that they put in. It's around the the jet noise and the FAA, and and essentially, I guess I don't know how I'm going to tell this story short, so I'm just going to condense it down really, really short. Several years ago, the FAA released kind of a rule. Um, that they piloted and rolled out in a few different areas. And then it made its way to Charlotte, where it rolled out here. Um, I can't remember all the technical words, but essentially what it did is, is it, it uh, distributed or, or separated out a lot of the routes, both in and out of the airport, instead of kind of in a single rail, if you will, multiple rails um, that ultimately made more air traffic come in, around, and lower to residential areas, many of which in my district, District 6. So the entire premise here is these folks are very upset that this has happened without some of the you know due process and things that have been seen. There's not much we can do about it, but they're citing in Phoenix where this first started, uh, the city council and others uh, sued the FAA and successfully sued them. Now, there's a bunch of differences between there and here, one of which their lawsuit was based on the FAA didn't have proper public forums, and they flew over historic districts and areas, of which they they solved the public forums when they came to us and recognizing that was there. And we don't really fly over any major historic districts. So the punchline here is these folks are incredibly upset. We have very limited things we can do from a city council perspective, but they want us to explore really pushing the envelope and following in the footsteps of Phoenix and what's going on in Maryland right now and potentially sue the FAA for for creating all of this undue burden and impact on quality of life over these residential areas. So it's a double-edged sword, but like, I mean, just, I didn't even explain a quarter of what, of the detail I've learned over the last couple of business days. How, how do you gut react to that? Well, first I, I would say, just imagine how the people in District 3 feel the ones where the planes are taking off. And we've, we've over the years, continued to buy up properties to mitigate um, noise pollution and, and air traffic um, impacts in, in that way. So, you know, it's a problem everywhere. I, I've, I actually always thinking about planes because um, my dog has some weird thing where he hates planes. And anytime, and we hear planes every time we go out to walk, we hear them over our house. And they're really high up and I can still hear them. 
He hears him. He barks at him because he's a weird dog. But um, the other thing is that <laughs> – Wait a sec. Come on. We're not just going to move past that. Jake's you're, awesome. Shout out to Jake. Jake, you, if you're listening, I love you, little buddy. So your dog has an aversion to planes. Yeah, he hates planes. Okay. And other poodles. And that's basically all he hates. We could do something about the poodles, but I don't know well, about the planes. Um, the other thing is the airport operates so independently. A lot of times I feel like it's it's very much at arm's length with mm-hmm. the work we do in comparison to any of the other funds or departments or or whatever. It's it's physically detached from us, obviously, because it's it's far away from the government center. We don't see the folks that run it on a regular basis. Um, its funds are very much encumbered within the airport in that we can't utilize any any funds from the airport for anything outside of airport projects um so it really is kind of its own little universe out there and i think a lot of times it's it's something we probably know less about than most of the other departments we make decisions for but it's also given me an idea for uh someone we need to get on the podcast soon i know she's a listener uh so already a friend of the pod but tracy montrose from american airlines And, and american airlines is also um one of their other hubs you mentioned phoenix is Phoenix. So probably something she's pretty up to speed on. And if, uh, if her employer will allow it, I am, I am going to invite her here and now to come and join us on the pod and talk about the airport, teach us some stuff about the airport and our listeners. Um, cause a lot of times it, it just is, it's out of sight, out of mind, even though it is not arguably just inarguably our, our biggest asset in the city and biggest economic engine. And yet sometimes the thing we know the least about. And, and the, the, the craziest part about this for me is, one, that very point of the arm's length nature of, of a lot of the activities. But two, it's it's an extra arm's length here of our ability kind of to influence this because it's, you know, a federal piece of FAA directive that ultimately came down through. And, you know, for us to stand up and do something against it, I'm finding is almost basically you know, suing the FAA. Literally, there's not much in between there. For now, we highly we highly recommend shouting at the sky. Yeah, <laughs> uh, as a stop. I mean, it's measure. tough. I feel I feel for the neighbors, and, and a lot of them are very passionate about this, and they're very smart in this in this field. So it's not like they're. I mean, if you read the op ed, you know they know what they're talking about. It's just when you learn more from our city attorney and others, our hands are kind of tied. All right, Tracy Montrose, let us know when you can come on. We're going to dig into some airport issues, and everyone's going to be, be better for it. This will be a test to see if she listens. Oh, I know she listens. Perfect. She gives she gives all sorts of constructive criticism code word and feedback. Is airplane noise? Airplane noise. Great. <laughs> all right. So tonight we had our second strategy session meeting. So the, as we mentioned last month, the first Monday of each month, uh, Mayor Lyles has created kind of a new platform where we can get things on the table. We can. Um, this was the first time where we used this strategy session to kind of debrief out of our five main committees. Um, so that not just the members of those committees are aware of the activities going on in them. Uh, and so the chairs reported out tonight. We're going to talk in the second segment with Housing and Neighborhood Development Committee Chair, District 3 Representative Luana Mayfield, about her committee report. Uh, but one that you and I were both in today, I'm the Vice Chair of the Environment Committee. You joined us for that meeting today, and then we reported out tonight from it. Uh, what were your thoughts coming out of that meeting? I, I got to tell you, the more and more I'm dropping into the details of this, the more confused I am just mentally what needs to be done. So anyone when you say this. <laughs> all of this. I well. mean, A's, B's, C's, I mean, everything it relates to. But you haven't used the word stormwater yet. Yeah, that's right. Stormwater. I'm sorry. Good point. Did I jump the gun? I was you, thinking what I was going to say before. So frame this back up. And so the I'll environment committee the meeting today, because to Dark's point, 
that he got ahead of himself on. I did. This is such a big issue. They took up the entire meeting, and not only that, but a what two was scheduled meeting. for a 90-minute meeting, apparently, went 120 minutes, and we literally talked about nothing else but Stormwater. So Stormwater, so back to where so I was, because I, I, I literally was so wrapped up in this that we it's a billion-dollar backlog. Uh, yeah, and we've talked about it many times. It's over a billion-dollar uh, um, gap in funding, and even if we could do it all today... There's no guarantee we have the resources to even handle it. Uh, I guess where I've been really struggling is, and I asked the question in the meeting today, there's two, there's two major kind of uh, pillars by which you have to answer these questions. One, what, what role should we be playing in stormwater? And then two, what promises did we historically make that we need to keep to folks? And, and again, I, I look back, I learned 25 years ago, the whole reason that this stormwater enterprise fund and approach exists was an EPA mandate that ultimately made us have to do it. So I'm almost wondering, of course, there's a lot of reasons why that's a good thing, but this A, B, and C category, of which C has 600 million plus in a backlog there, I, I'm starting, so the first part of me about a, in the last month said, well, you know, we've got to do this and it's our job and it's our fundamental job as government and we need to do it and we made promises. Now I'm starting to sip, step back and think, well, we made promises and we need to follow through on those promises. But is this actually our role? As you learn more about the definition of C's, it almost to me is starting to feel like, and again, I'll, I'll put an asterisk next to this. I'm thinking out loud because I haven't framed my mind here around it. I'm, I'm almost thinking that we started taxing people this stormwater fee and they started seeing, oh, well, I could get this solved in my property unrelated to the right of way essentially that's flowing in. Or public safety. Yeah, I mean, how, how much of this is a problem that we kind of said, all right, let's fund all this together. And how much of this is our actual role going forward? I don't know the answer to that, but my, my thinking is starting to evolve. We have to fulfill those promises we made. But, I, you know. Well, I, I think one thing that there seems to be no dissension on is that going forward, the sea level projects, which are just, just the way that we've named our lowest priority projects, uh, they're likely in, on private property, they are certainly not causing any sort of public safety hazard at this time, um, and they're they're just in no way um, the role of, of local government going forward. I think there's complete agreement on that, um, partly because there's not a public good inherent in them, but but also partly because to your point. We will never do them. They will never get done. We could have the money tomorrow handed to us, and we wouldn't have the capacity to ever catch up with them because we are we have so many of the AIs. If we A's don't even do them, we totally cut them all out, the ones we've even made promises to, and we raise rates 8% next year and mm -hmm. compound at 6% every year thereafter, it still, still takes us 25 years to get back to the level we're at, we'd be at today. Right. I mean, that's just insane. Yeah, I think it was 2042, we start to see the curve head down Dude, below I be current. so long dead by then. Well, <laughs> you and Braxton's son will be, sons will be on city council fixing this um, in 30 years. So, and, and Justin's. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that, that to your point, so we talked about a cost share program where some of these folks who are, dealing with a C issue that are already on the list. We're not even adding anyone to the list and haven't been for two years. There's a cost sharing program that we've asked staff to dig into the details on more where if you're already on the list for these C level low priority projects, 
the city will come in and help um, subsidize some of the work, uh, help you cover some of the cost of the work if you're willing to chip in and, and cover someone you're in as well. We can start to attack those and start to, to fulfill some of those promises that were made in that way. Um, there are 4,000 sea level projects that are already in the queue. We think, based on estimates um, and, a, and a small sample we took of about 10% that were reevaluated, that probably half those no longer would qualify anymore. They've either already been corrected by the owner, they've self-corrected just through the course of nature, or in a handful of cases, they've actually worsened to the point where they'd be a B-level project, which would go into our B-level queue, and we would address it with with us covering the entire cost at some point. Again, that's a long timeline. Um, there's just no good There's no good solution but here. But here's the problem I had, right, with that. And I, I liked the cost share thing at first. But then I stepped back and listened to some comments and different things like that. I mean, I, and I think you and I were aligned in, in your comment on, I thought a pilot process is like fast fail. Do something for 30 days and let's see how she rolls, <laughs> right? pilot was going to be five years. Five-year pilot process. I was like, I mean, only around here does someone recommend a five-year pilot process. But... Even that aside, let's just say that that's right. Or let's say it's a one-year or two-year for yeah, I five million. I think I proposed two years. Five million dollars was kind of that piece. And even if you double it to $10 million or you cut the time in half. Literally a drop in the bucket. I mean, I, I think it's a little less than sincere for us to say uh, we invite all of you who have been exited out of the $600 million problem into apply for this $5 million pilot bucket. I mean, it's just, I get it. And if it's a I'll pilot... I was trying to put, put my more, marketing and advertising degree I, to work. Yeah, but that, that, I think that's the... that uh, Everyone was anxious to kind of maybe say, oh, let's get behind the wording there. But the fact of the matter is, if you're in that $600 million backlog bucket, you're done if this, if this path goes through. And you might have a one in... Basically, if you were one in the... One in... You know, ten and forty-eight hundred that were the noisiest of everybody over the last five years. You're probably the one that's going to be able to get this money because that's how we basically designed it. I, I just, it's almost two different things. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that even though the five million or whatever it is, and even if it's a year or two years, which I think we we all agree is more makes more sense for a pilot program. I do think that it can it can set some expectations and give us a better understanding of of how many people out there still want to address these issues still have concerns about their, you know, lower priority projects and are willing to come to the table with some of their own dollars in combination with ours to help fix them. And maybe that gives us uh, more sound numbers to then go forward from there with and say, you know, it turns out most of these C's we're never going to have to deal with um, and don't need to. And again, you know, we're, we're using these letters. AI um, was defined us very simply as something that is a very imminent danger to the public. Um, it might be a sinkhole in the middle of the road. An A project is something that is maybe not quite as acute an issue, but is in the public right away and is um, is a serious. So when you get to B, you're out of the right away. In some for cases, the most part. in some cases, or it's not an imminent danger to the public. Um, I guess where it goes back to me is on this one is, and this is a thinking that has recently evolved this and unvetted. If anyone out there in listener land really knows this and can answer it, it's one of the questions I wanted to ask, which is, you know, what happens in cities where you say, you know, we're not going to do C's anymore. You know what? We're not going to do B's anymore. <laughs> yeah, because what happens then? Do, do, do they get taken care of by private I individuals and entities? And But if you if you go that route, 
you need to give folks relief. And that means you need to reduce the fee structure and the fees that are ultimately being paid into this. But I guess where my gut is kind of leaning is 25 years ago, and then the years that followed that kind of evolved the ABC methodology, did we start charging a bunch and then ultimately say, let's solve it for everyone. And then it got out of control. And now we've kind of stepped into an area where maybe a smaller government in this in this perspective is the better thing. Well, and if you'd step back from this issue, and I agree with you that if, if promises were made and we're kind yeah. of still digging into that, then to. that has to be factored in. But if you think about uh, the, the example that comes to mind for me is trees. If you think about a tree, I had an issue with a tree a couple of years ago that was on the front of my property in that kind of public right of way. So that was something that then came and uh, the city came and dealt with. Whereas I've got some dead limbs on the tree in my backyard and certainly no one would think that it's the city's responsibility to come and deal with that tree that's in my backyard. Now, did the city say anything if you were chained to the tree, I'm assuming? Well, I was, I was hugging the tree when they got there. <laughs> but but my point is that if, if there's very other, there are very few other instances where we expect that local government is going to come and intervene in something that's taking place on our own private property, if it's not impacting someone beyond our, our and just theoretically, ourselves. if if the city, the right of way somewhere in that kind of road kind of piping area caused it, it's going to be at the higher levels. Right. So it's it's this is more like I got a problem a, a here. Rut, and come a, help me. Yeah. Right. It wasn't runoff, you didn't cause it. There's runoff that's that's causing like a rut or a ravine through your backyard. So again, I mean, it, we have to we have to figure out what our role is, but. Just the reality of the situation is it's a long-term fix, even in the most aggressive scenarios. I think we all agree the seas are, are not going to ever be fixed solely by the city. So I do like the idea of piloting a project. Pilot projects, is, is it can't be five years. It's got to be a year or two years. And, and then we extrapolate the data we get from that and say, now let's reevaluate and, and continue to move forward. Yeah. Um, one thing we did, uh, we, we might have to change one of our, our, our colleagues' nicknames today. Because because it was suggested to me that maybe we have to, I, I got to chastise Matt Newton a little here. Matt take oh, Matt yeah. Matt take back Newton. You 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 came. Uh, I, I made a motion. Matt yeah. seconded it, and then he he swiftly removed his second. And I haven't had a chance in person to properly chastise him. So we'll chastise him on the pod to see if protocol, he listens. Protocol wise, can you, can you just retract a second like I, that? I think you can. Um, <laughs> I wanted to take some action today. Um, others wanted to, to drill into all the details and have a full... I liked it, man. I liked it. You know, I mean, well, we've been talking about inaction from well, the same committee for so long. You stepped up and said, all and, right. And even some something. of the veteran members were decrying the fact that, that this committee um, previously has... Previous iterations of this committee have just let this languish and, and But then no you hit action. him with the motion. And Where then, was everybody at? And I couldn't find a second to save <laughs> my life. Now, in Tarek's defense. I was trying, but. He couldn't. As a, as an, a member of council who was auditing a committee he's not on, yeah. uh, he was unable to make to make a second. Honorary, non-voting committee So, uh, Matt, take back Newton. I hope you hear this. Take and, back. Uh, just know what goes around comes around. Ah, so, I'm going to I'm gonna fake second a motion he makes and then retract it <laughs> when he least expects it. So, Matt, be on the lookout. Yes. But on, so, when we come back, though, we're bringing on. Special guest The, the always five. exciting, never at a loss for words. District 3 Councilwoman Lawana Mayfield, and I bet she's got some stuff to say. I can't wait to hear it. Let's go. Alright, welcome back to R&D the QC. We have got another special guest, friend of the pod. Friend of the pod, don't even bring it up, we're going to keep saying it. Alright, we're going to keep saying it. Uh, 
Lawana, we, we get a hard time about this. Lawana Mayfield's in the building, so one of our veteran council colleagues and the chair of the hand committee, the Housing and Neighborhood Development Committee. So at our strategy session tonight, one of the things that the mayor asked the committee chairs to do was to report out from the work that each committee is handling so that the full council would kind of be up to speed on what's going on. Um, so why don't you start by telling us the work that's being done in the in the hand committee and what you talked about tonight. Yeah, you're not very outspoken, so maybe now is the time right. for you to come out of your shell. Come out of your shell and explain this to us. I'm kind of shy, and I try <laughs> not to take advantage of the microphone. So one is interesting for me because I am on a committee where I am the only female. Mm. I am surrounded by men on my committee, Housing and Neighborhood Development. And it is interesting to hear how the conversation moves forward with the impact of what is the idea of affordable and talking about affordable housing. If anyone's ever heard me speak on an interview regarding housing, you know that I'm not a fan of that idea. We need to talk about diverse price point housing, which is a very different conversation. And when we look at the reality of what are we working on right now, we're, we just identified earlier tonight that we have nine properties that the city owns, not looking at school board or looking at the county or anyone else, strictly city that is probably shovel ready for housing today. And how many other, and now we have a new charge for staff on any land that is, our land or that we may potentially purchase before that land is identified as surplus or we figure out figure out we want to sell it off we are stepping back to say can this land be used for housing and for development with partnership in the private sector because government can't do it all and i think you nailed it earlier you said highest and best use not just maximizing every last dollar out of it. And that's been a frustration of mine as a, as a private citizen and someone who's on the Landmarks Commission. At times, there are other elected bodies in, in our area that I felt like all they were looking at was what's the absolute highest amount of dollars we can get for this property. And so to know that the city, um, prior to our election, that, that you were working on in that committee, changing that policy to say, if we've got an asset, let's make sure we are using it for its highest and best purpose. So I'm glad we're doing that. And I don't know, we it was a nerdy off. joke that I made, but a, it was a, little, terrible joke. a little nudge about the 5th and the 11th floor, because I'd like to see the county and the school board adopt that same sort of policy, and I, I don't think they have it now. So well, here's the challenge. We dropped the ball as a community and as an elected body. The land that's being developed right off of 277 in Uptown right now, we own that. We could have said that there needed to be a mixture. When we put the RFQ out, when we put out the request for a proposal to let the development community know, hey, we have this prime land, but in order for you to develop here, here's the expectation. You need to build 50% and below area median income. We did not do that. The only goal was how much money can we get for it. But here's the reality. Government never sells at the highest. When you really look at how we spend money, and when you look at the relationship between city and county, we've practically given away land mm -hmm. over multiple decades 
So it's not even a clear ledger between how much we've walked away from we being the city dollars on the table in order to support a project that the county wanted to build. Look at the Eastland land. We leveled it. We spent the million and some change to go through all the environmental cleaning for it to give the county the land for practically nothing. Pennies on the dollar. So one of the things in your committee meeting last week that kind of blew my mind, I think you physically saw me get my mind blown when I was doing some math, right, (laughs) was I had seen a few data points in that presentation I hadn't seen before. So I backed into the math, first of all, looking at our history over the last many years, it's an average, and you look at you know the more competitive 9% versus 4% money, the real estate prices that were less. At, at best case, it costs us about an average of $25,000 per unit of affordable unit. housing we've created. Years ago. Years yes. ago. Years ago. So it's only worse now, right, yes. as it relates to the cost. Well, it's more like 375 like, Exactly. So if you take that and then you work that math forward, there's 21,000 affordable units needed today. But putting that aside, which is a $550 million price tag, just accounting for the new people arriving every day that fall below that 80% AMI route and are needed. Right. Literally, we could put a $50 million um, uh, uh, issue on the ballot for everyone to vote on every two years, and we wouldn't even be throwing a little rock in the ocean here and making a splash. We would just be keeping the ocean the same size it is today. Exactly. So I guess I, um, the question I came away with is, there's got, I mean, there, there has to be something different than this because it's throwing 50 or $100 million at something that literally isn't even going to make a dent in it can't be the only way we focus on this problem. Let me have you start by clarifying two of those numbers because I think they might confuse folks. The $25,000 would be for a new unit created. Correct. Right. That's right. Okay. Yep. And then the, the 21,000 units that, that Tar just referenced. Listeners have heard us also reference 34,000 number. The 24,000 number, if I remember correctly, is under 50% AMI. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. So here's the thing that we also need to keep in mind. So if we're going to talk about real dollars. Three weeks ago, the latest MIT study said a family of four, say you're a single parent with three children, the living wage that you need to make in Charlotte today, that family needs to make $71,000. So that is thirty four seventy one an hour. How many people do you know making over $30 an hour? That is the cost of living today. But the reason the cost of living is what it is is because of demand. So there was a time that we had more than 15,000 units that were just out there, meaning if my apartment complex is too expensive or my socioeconomic challenge, anything changes and I start making less money, I'm laid off, I'm transitioned, whatever it is, I still had options to go other places to live. Well, because of the growth, and that growth is anywhere from 44 to 70 plus people a day, depending on who you're talking to, that people that are moving here with no job, no family, no resources, people that are coming here for school, people that are coming here for opportunities, people that are relocating with their company, and now you're looking for housing. Those who have come in able to buy. So you're coming in and you're purchasing a home outright, or investors have come in and purchased 
NOLA, which we keep talking about, which is NOAA. naturally NOAA, NOA, naturally occurring, NOHA. Naturally, NOAA. Naturally, NOAA. Like the guy built the boat. Affordable. Right. Like, NOAA's the whole like, New Orleans thing. <laughs> right. So, naturally <laughs> occurring affordable housing. So, NOAH. When you look at what is that, those are the units that were built in the 70s and 80s. Well, companies are coming in, investment, buying those, evicting the people that may live there, which they may be paying $700 in their rent. Non-subsidized. Non-subsidized. Well, now rents today are starting at twelve, thirteen hundred dollars That is a major jump. So when we say, well, Charlotte doesn't have affordable housing, that's why I don't like using that language because there is affordable housing. The question is, who is it affordable to? But if you're going to talk about diverse price point, that's a different conversation. And we can't build new. The reality is there is no more $375, $400, $500 rent especially in a multifamily, but you have single-family homes where people purchased those homes 15 years ago, 12 years ago, they may have purchased that home for $25,000, $30,000. So your rent is, your actual mortgage on that home is under five hundred, dollars but you're charging $1,500, $1,800 a month because you can. And you can probably specify this. The one thing I think we've touched on before is that preserving those naturally occurring naturally occurring affordable housing uh, developments, we can actually probably get two units for ever for the same cost as an, as one new unit. So we can double our impact if we're finding and identifying those places you talked about that might have been built in the '80s and renting for eight hundred dollars. We can do that much more effectively with with the dollars than we can trying to. To build our way out of this. And we also have to be able to figure out, I mean, it's so multifaceted, the, the solution that, that will come to this has to be, given the size of the problem. But I got to think that there's, everything needs to be on the table. And looking at streamlining regulation and the red tape and all that stuff to get to get a affordable housing kind of project in smaller amounts of time, smaller amounts of impact, that's going to impact the bottom line, is it not? Yeah, I think so. I mean... It, Again, we, we always come back to it's a multifaceted problem. It's going to require a multifaceted solution. So I, I think the work we're doing in the housing committee is, is realizing that it's going to have to take a, a very multi-pronged approach. One thing I know before you, before you leave, one thing I know we wanted to touch on with you while you're here is what came out today. Our new planning director, Taiwo Jaioba. I'm work, still working on pronouncing the last name. That's all right. I don't think that was it. No, it's, well, but but there, I've been here three months. I've been here longer than Taiwo has, and uh, people are still working on pronouncing my name, so I'll get a pass. That's but not you guys have it down. <laughs> but um, no. I can't remember. I don't remember. It's what? Eggleston, like the food. Just remember right, what you like to eat. That's not what was said. Larkin. No. We have a colleague still working on it. Um, but... He came up tonight and he talked about the UDO process as one of the presentations that, that came to us. And you've seen this, obviously, for far longer than Tarek and I have. What's your take on where it was, where it is, and where it's going? And here's the thing, so that everyone knows, UDO, Unified <laughs> Development, Development Ordinance. Ordinance. So we have a couple of conversations happening. One, no previous council ever approved a UDO. 
we've just been hearing these initials and the idea of it is a great idea. Can we unify our current ordinances and the current language that developers are using when they're coming into an area? Because that helps them have a better idea of what is going into the area. That also helps to uh, reduce the amount of rezonings that need to be done because we get a lot of rezonings. But I also need us to think about it and be careful. The only thing that comes before council is the rezoning. So if we create the language, if we were to get it right, that language needs to be diverse enough to encompass a growing city like ours. Tariq, you said it. What's going on in South Park is very different than what's happening in Fremont West. Yeah, right I mean, uh, the, the current South Park area plan, as I was scrolling through it, as I were in the meeting today, it was like the need to create more of a town center around the outskirts of South Park Mall. Well, guess what? Mall that is going to cattle farms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you just can't kind of genericize that and drop it on Eastland Mall. Not a word. Exactly. And think about Steel Creek area. So Steel Creek, I have more than 800 acres of undeveloped land out there. That's not going to the idea of what's in a plan for South Park isn't going to fit into a part of Steel Creek. It won't fit into the Ayersley part of Steel Creek. And I, I get the sense I get the sense that I think a city manager was correct in that we all might think they're a little farther <laughs> along, which because I mean just some basic questions. It was like, you know, I, yeah, we haven't kind of figured that out yet. And I guess it just goes to we need to do a better job communicating between staff and council on this because I found a website today with a bunch of descriptions of seven place types when they told me at exactly. the meeting and it was open to the public and the community like what if i had some kind of huge you know backlash from people in my community that said what about this and this and this no one had ever even told me about but it here's like, the other side of that is a lot of that has come from community conversations mm -hmm. so you have members of the community that spent a year creating their neighborhood plan and then we come along and say, well, here's the new plan without any input from you. We have to figure out how to engage the community. But I do agree. We have to figure out how to engage staff and council, which is why I asked the question earlier. Okay, so is council, what is the role of city council? Our role is to create policy for staff and then go implement. But there's a challenge. I feel like even though I have personally never served in the military, based on every military show that I've watched on TV, I feel like <laughs> that, we... That's the best place right. to get information yeah. on anything. That's where you Seriously. get all the information that you need. That's, so, that's, why, that's why I practice <laughs> surgery in my spare time. I exactly. used to watch ER. <laughs> and Doogie Howser. So I look at the fact that, that it seems like... You're not that young. So yeah, you have to do that implementation of... Staff is presenting information, and yeah. it's kind of like work, working with the military and you're on a need-to-know basis, but staff determines what we need to know. Yeah. So then when council starts asking clarifying questions, it's almost a hard stop because staff is like, well, I don't have the answer to that. But we are the ones who have to go back to the community and try to explain it, either why it's a good idea or why we should have more questions for And if we don't clearly understand it, then how can we represent and present to the community what it is that we're doing? Final question. Who ordered the code red? Wow. Did you get that's that a, that's a, No one ever gets my movie references here. You said military movies. Right. The code red. He said, you can't handle the truth? You can't handle the uh, truth. Right. God. That was, that was kind of obscure given... 
where the conversation had gone. But better better luck next week with your jokes. <laughs> I'm just saying, I could have gone to Wakanda for that one, though. <laughs> True. I think one True. of my takeaways is they need to... It can't, the assumption can't be that because something exists, we've seen it. There's hundreds and thousands of these studies and, and data sets and whatever that, that exist in this building and in the cloud and, and in wherever. And, and to Tar's point, this website's been sitting out there, and I'm sure some people have seen it, but we hadn't. So, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's a bit of a, a, it gives a bit of cover if they go, well, this is out there for everybody to see, but if no one's made us aware of it or said, hey, you guys should look at this. So you know what's going on with the UDO process. So I think and communication no one even needs knows to where to bit. begin to look. So even if you go to our website, if you go to charlottenc.gov, unless you know what to put in the search engine, it's still not necessarily Which this isn't there, available. by the way. It's at charlotteudo.org. Right. <laughs> Which now all our listeners can go and look yeah. at. And no but change. remember, there Let was a time when there heard. was Charmette. Yeah. So now the county has its own website. The city of Charlotte has its own website. So which the UDO which, has its own website. Which, which we're actually pretty thankful for after a couple months ago. But. Right, because no one ever talks about the fact that it was the city of Charlotte employee that actually caught the breach. And we said, okay, we're going to cut our line. True. City wins again. <laughs> All right. So, District 3 Councilwoman Luana Mayfield, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. We look forward to having you back. Thank and, y'all uh, for inviting me. This has been fun. Thank mm-hmm. you for always helping to keep all of our meetings lively and, uh, and entertaining. Indeed. Wakanda forever. Indeed. I don't know what that means yet, but I am going <laughs> to see that movie, and then I'll get back to you with a response. <laughs> Episode 10, in the books, Larkin. Sounds good. We'll see y'all next week. Make sure you like the Facebook page. Make sure you share this podcast through whatever medium it is you're listening, and that you rate us five stars so that more people can find us. We love you all, and we'll talk to you next week. Later. You're listening to R&D at the QC with Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston.